morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is my last morning uh, doing this from Aspen, heading back to uh, the Midwest. Um, and what an extraordinary day, though. I mean, I, 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 I think my default setting, and I've said this before, my default setting is to expect to be underwhelmed. Uh, the, the All the hype about the emergency meeting of the January 6th committee and the secret witness. I guess I... I kind of rolled my eyes about that and I thought, okay, they better live up to this billing. And I have to say, uh, they did. It was an extraordinary day and there are so many elements to discuss. So we are very lucky to be joined once again by our good friend, David Priest, who's the publisher of Lawfare, co-host of the weekly national security podcast called Chatter. And highly relevant again today, he's the author of the book, How to Get Rid of a President, which we first talked about more than three years ago on this podcast. And it's a book describing all the ways the presidents have left office or that people tried to remove them. And of course, Donald Trump is out of office, but he's intending on coming back. So it it seems so relevant. So David, welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate it. It is good to be back talking with you. It's it's weird, the kind of the return, the circular history here, because at the same time, we're here we are talking again about these same themes in that book. Yesterday, I sat there at one moment actually laughing because how did how did Trump's administration begin with him obsessing over crowd size at inauguration? And what did we hear yesterday? The president obsessing over crowd size at his rally. It was it was so ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. So th- there are so many things I want to touch on here. And, you know, I, I don't know whether we'll, we'll get the, the order right. But I, you know, first of all, Cassidy Hutchinson was a remarkably poised, effective, yep. I thought, credible and compelling witness. Agreed. Probably more so than, than any of the others they've had. And, and she's a Trumpist. You know, yep. th- again, this can't be overemphasized. All of the most powerful testimony is coming from inside Trump world. And she, with her testimony yesterday, brought the January 6th investigation right into the room where it happened. So, th- I mean, that's number one. Number two is this hearing laid out, I thought, several new lines of possible criminal exposure for Trump. Now, I'm not a lawyer here, but I was on a show yesterday with Neil Katyal, the former acting solicitor general. Mm-hmm who really, you know, his eyebrows were up and he said, you know, look at this, uh, you know, range charges ranging from seditious conspiracy to witness tampering. And he thought that yesterday really increased the the odds that uh, the Trump will, in fact, face criminal charges. So, yeah, give me your 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 bottom line, just sort of your gut reaction to what happened yesterday. Well, let me hit let me hit that first point, which is on Cassidy Hutchinson herself. So. I found her to be highly credible for two reasons, one of which is better than the other. But the first reason why she's credible and the better reason is that there were some receipts. Uh, The committee had done its job. You could see the results of some of the what I'll call technical work that our friend Denver Riggleman helped the committee with in terms of having corroborating texts, phone call records, things of that sort to show that, yeah, what she's saying makes sense. Of course, combined with the fact that she was literally in the room where it happened for so many of the things she described. And I think in that case, she came across, as you mentioned, as a highly credible person who was a true believer uh, up to that point. The second reason is, is frankly not as good a reason to find her credible, but it actually does matter for real human beings because of our psychology, which is she presented with clarity with poise, with confidence, 
in a way that there are people who are decades older and much more experienced don't do. And I found her to be in many ways, a role model of, of how to answer questions in such a setting. For many years, I helped train senior analysts and other officers in the intel community to give briefings to the president and other senior officials. And that can be a very stressful environment. And I got to say, she was up there with the best of them in terms of <laughs> stammering or stuttering or breaking down or showing any sign that she was not credible. She presented herself very well. And Combining those two things, I thought, this is a damning witness in a way that I did not expect. I thought it was a mistake to hype a special emergency hearing and then highlight somebody. I did too. Already I, I, I had the same reaction. I, I couldn't believe it. I was shaking my head a bit saying, oh no, don't, don't screw up this opportunity. And then I spent a couple of hours yesterday afternoon picking my jaw up off the floor time and time again. So I mean, one of the big questions was, you know, why did she do it? And I, I think she she made it very clear when she described her reaction to Trump's tweet, you know, in the afternoon of January 6th about Mike Pence. This is what she said. I, and and in, in terms of the poise and, and her use of language, I mean, this is a really concise, clear answer that I, it's it's not denigrating her to say it was clearly prepared, but, but because it was it was so direct. She said, as, as a staffer who works to always represent the administration to the best of my ability and to showcase the good things that he had done for the country, I remember feeling frustrated, disappointed, and really it felt personal. As an American, I was disgusted. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. Yeah. I thought her, her use of language was was very precise. But I also think, and I hope people don't think that I'm trivializing this, I'm trying to think how Donald Trump looked at this. You know, he obsesses about appearances. And look, she's a very attractive young woman. She was poised. And to use Trump's own term, I mean, she looked like she was from central casting. Mm -hmm. And this really had to bother him. It is one of the insiders. And he knows that she knows everything. And he values loyalty. She made very, very strong television. So th these are the, the trivial lines. Was he watching the hearing yesterday oh, yeah. and hurling plates of ketchup at the walls of Mar-a-Lago? Um, it could have happened. Well, I see that uh, Liz Cheney has tweeted out a piece by our good friend David French from the Dispatch. The case for prosecuting Donald Trump just got much stronger. Let's just back into this because I, I want to address right up front the one thing that I think is going to be controversial, but I think, spoiler alert, ultimately is not the most determinative or important thing. But you, you mentioned you know picking your jaw up off the floor. I'm sitting here in a hotel room and I was actually lying down and I sat straight up and said, holy bleep, when she told the story about the president demanding that the Secret Service take him to join the mob at the Capitol. So let's play that soundbite where she's describing the alleged interaction of the president with his Secret Service agents. Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm 
said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Wow. wow. Okay. Now, this was the most dazzling, you know, holy crap moment. But look, it's a secondhand story. And, and then there are these sources, quote unquote sources, I'm doing the air quotes here, you know, suggesting the Secret Service might knock it down. Peter Alexander from NBC tweeted out a source close to the Secret Service tells me that both Bobby Engel, the lead agent and the presidential limousine uh, SUV driver are prepared to testify under oath that neither man was assaulted and that Trump never lunged for the steering wheel. Hutchinson's attorney responded. His name is Jody Hunt. Ms. Hutchinson, he wrote, Ms. Hutchinson testified under oath mm-hmm. and recounted what she was told. Those with knowledge of the episode also should testify under oath. So, look, I mean, yep. you know, call their bluff, put them, bring them up. If, they're, if they've indicated they're willing to do it, fine, put them under oath. And you can we can judge for ourselves if you have people telling different stories. But I'm I'm sick of, you know, sources close to yeah, these yeah. people who aren't willing to, to be there. You know, what do we need next? A source close to Jared and Ivanka weighing in? It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. She she put herself at personal risk to be in that room, to testify live, to say things that she knows all of the people within her bubble aren't bringing up the courage to say. Um, let's see other people pony up and, and get their asses in there, too. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, the stakes are high here because you know how this actually works, you know, that that if, in fact, uh, you do have testimony that you know, knocks this down, a mega world, Trump world, will use this to impeach your credibility on everything else. And I have to admit, when this came out last night, I, you know, was questioning, did the January 6th committee do its proper vetting? I mean, did they check with the Secret Service? Do they, do they have some corroboration before they put out this absolutely incendiary testimony? I hope they did. But here's, here's why it matters and here's why it doesn't. It matters because it is incendiary and unprecedented. We've had presidents who disagreed with their protective details before. We've had presidents who actively evaded their details. There are stories from Kennedy, from Nixon, from Clinton, who, who tried to avoid their details so they could go out and do things that the, the service had told them it was not safe to do. But we do not have cases of presidents assaulting their own officers and trying to seize control of a vehicle, which does make me wonder, does Trump even know how to drive a car? I mean, what, what would he do if he did take control of the wheel from presumably further back in the vehicle? So it matters because it is, yet again, in our list of 835 ways in which Um, Trump has demonstrated that he does not have the character to be president. But it really doesn't matter because there were some other things in the testimony that were more important for the issues having to do with the attempted coup and the issue of whether he actually reached for a clavicle or whether he touched the steering wheel. That's what Cassidy said she was told. Okay, that's fine. But we have other cases where the president made clear that he really wanted this to be focused on the Capitol. He wanted the people to move to the Capitol with weapons, we now know, and he wanted to get to the Capitol. That's the most important part of that story for the big picture, not the image of the president lunging for the wheel or lunging at one of his agents in anger. Well, yeah, I mean, the takeaway on all of this is that, and we'll see how this plays out, 
that the president was adamant that he wanted to join the mob, despite the fact that his own counsel, Pat Cipollone, had told him that if he, in fact, did go to the Capitol under these circumstances, they would be charged with all kinds of charges. By the way, I I think a lot of what happened yesterday was about Pat Cipollone. Cassidy Hutchinson was a very, very compelling witness, and it may have been close to a John Dean moment. But of course, the literal real John Dean moment would be, because he was White House counsel under Nixon, would be if Pat Cipollone testified. And he was warning and warning and warning, don't do this. So you you mentioned, you know, there are other testimony. I think what was so is so interesting is how it expanded this timeline and the details, the links between the White House inner circle, the fact that they knew what was about to go down. You know, and the, you know, she testified that on January 2nd, four days before this, the, the counting of the Electoral College, Rudy Giuliani tells her directly, this is not hearsay, directly, the 6th is going to be a great day. We're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president is going to be there. He's going to look powerful. And then Meadows, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, says to her, things might get real, get real bad on January 6th. So mm-hmm. they knew. They yeah. knew it was about to go down. That's an important piece of, important. of evidence. But I wanted to bounce this one off you because a lot of people are focusing on this as a possible smoking gun. Again, my quotation marks here. You know, clearly he had summoned the mob to the Capitol. He wanted to go with them. And this anecdote she tells about his order to let the protesters with weapons in, and of course, followed later by his real-time refusal to take action. But this moment that she describes, and they did a very effective job, I thought, yesterday, playing some of the police radio communications, where they were talking about people with weapons, people Mm -hmm. with Glocks, people with AR-15s. They were concerned about this. So let's play this is a little bit longer because this is an extraordinary moment. This is the, I don't effing care they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. <laughs> so take down the mags, the, the basically Mag- the metal detectors, right? sure. Yeah, the magnetometers. Okay, so let's play that to us. When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, One of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, And he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deems as weapons and our our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Oh, my. So, David, your thoughts about that? It is undeniably clear that The weapons going to Capitol Hill, whether for intimidation purposes or for actual use, were not a bug but a feature, and the president knew it. I do respect the fact that you bring up John Dean, whom I've gotten to know in recent years, and I I really, really like him. But I want to stop hearing about John Dean moments and is this enough (laughs) Watergate, because this is no longer the question, you know, what did the president know about a burglary break-in and cover-up, and when did he know it? Now it's, 
How many specific weapons of which specific types did the president know he was directing toward an attempted coup? This is dramatically different. And with this new testimony, he knew there were weapons. He wanted the weapons to come in first, yes, for his publicity shot so he could make up for his inauguration joke of his crowd size. Yes, that's why he initially wanted people with weapons to come in. But that meant he knew he was directing them to the Capitol. He said, they're not here to hurt me. Let them march to the Capitol. That is damning and is something that, well, like I said, it's one of those moments that had my jaw on the floor. So David French over at the dispatch says, you know, this dramatically increases the chances of criminal charges. And Liz Cheney retweeted it. So she obviously is uh, is in line with all this. And he talks about the case law involving incitement for rioting, including uh, Supreme Court's Brandenburg uh, decision. I won't go too deep into the weeds on this, but he says there are several elements here, intentionality, likelihood of violence, and imminence of violence. You know, the imminence is the easiest to satisfy. The mob was right there. It marched to the Capitol right away as Trump was speaking. And then he says, well, but what about, you know, intention and likelihood? And let's read a little bit of what uh, David wrote. Said, First, Trump summoned the mob to Washington. Well, Trump is hardly the only organizer of the rally. He did explicitly call his supporters to Washington when he tweeted, big protest on January 6th, be there, will be wild. Second, he knew the mob was armed and dangerous. This is Hutchinson's key testimony. If her claims are true, if. He was so confident the mob intended him no harm that he wanted to remove the mags, uh, which is a key element of presidential security. He didn't just know the mob was armed. He wanted it to be armed. Third, he not only exhorted the mob to fight like hell and march on the Capitol, he reportedly attempted to lead it himself, which is so interesting, you know, that. There was a former federal prosecutor who said that, you know, the alleged attempt to wrestle the steering wheel would be evidence of Trump's state of mind when he engaged in earlier actions. But even if that allegation doesn't hold up, you know, it's not the main claim. I mean, even if he didn't try to commandeer the vehicle, he still plainly and clearly exhorted a mob he allegedly knew was armed to march on the Capitol. Fourth, Trump further inflamed the mob while the Capitol attack was underway. One of the most compelling moments in previous hearings was the video evidence that the crowd surged immediately after Trump tweeted during the heat of the fight that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was necessary. So, David, I'm sure you were struck by this. How many warnings were coming from within the White House before, during, and after? This is illegal. We are going to be charged. They knew in real time how bad it was. Absolutely. Yesterday, uh, after the the testimony ended, we pulled together a pretty rapid analysis on uh, Twitter spaces at Lawfare, which we turned into our Lawfare podcast for this morning. And Ben Wittes and I, right before it, said, okay, you know, let, let's kind of do a quick summary of the major claims. And I'm thinking, how can I do that? Just word for word, read the whole testimony. But I decided to quickly go through my scribbled notes and just come up with a top 10 list. And it's it's interesting looking back at these almost unreadable scribbles and circles and numbers, how many of those have to do with what you just mentioned? That, you know, going back to January 3rd or 4th, when Mark Meadows um, said to Cassidy Hutchinson that, that things might get real, real bad on January 6th. And then later on, as word is getting to the White House that they are moving on the Capitol and it's looking bad. And the idea is, should we get the president to do something? And Mark Meadows uh, says to the White House counsel, 
he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. That sent chills down my spine. Yeah. And, you know, Pat Cipollone is basically saying something needs to be done or people are going to die and blood is going to be on your fucking hands. This is getting out of control. I mean, this is inside the White House. This is his own lawyers. Okay, so you have written extensively about removing a president. There were a couple of interesting details about the political environment in the White House and how they overcame his resistance to giving a speech on January 7th. This seems to be in your wheelhouse because the 25th Amendment came up. So it was interesting how real the prospect of impeachment and removal was, but also the threat of the 25th Amendment. And apparently when they were trying to convince uh, Trump to say something the day after the riot insurrection, he did not want to do it, but eventually reluctantly did it. And it sounds like, at least that was my takeaway, I'll be interested in your take on this, is that that he he, he knew that he was at some risk, that's, that somebody might actually take action against him, 25th Amendment or impeachment. Yep, the 25th Amendment is a really, really high bar, as we've discussed yeah. before. It is purposely really, really difficult to remove the president's powers temporarily, which is what the 25th Amendment does. It is, it is not a permanent revocation. But it's really, really hard to do because... Honestly, the the framers did a really good job of making sure there would not be an incentive for a vice president and members of the cabinet to, in a sense, perform a palace coup. They wanted to make it hard. They wanted to make it um, difficult for the process itself, but also relatively easy for the Congress to overturn it. So it's not surprising to me that it didn't happen. But the fact that it was being discussed showed me that, in fact, some of the people around the president, and this is important to remember because of what you brought up about Cassidy Hutchinson herself, the people by this point in his administration were either the true believers or the people with no belief, just self-interest and grift in mind. So you had people who were the least inclined to take active measures against the president because of his unhinged post-election behavior. And yet, These people recognized that his total detachment from exercising even the most basic responsibilities of the office would meet the standard of the 25th Amendment, which is unable to perform the duties. Uh, They didn't do it, of course. It would have required Mike Pence. That's absolutely necessary. There's no way around that. The vice president has to be involved in that decision, as well as a majority of the uh, cabinet members. But the impeachment process could have also gone at the same time. There's absolutely no reason why the House could not have moved to impeach the president immediately upon certifying the electors and spinning through the process, changing the rules in order to do a rapid impeachment and removal even at that point. Obviously, political actors will say things in the heat of the moment, like Kevin McCarthy did as the Capitol was being stormed, that he would mock now and has retracted because he doesn't want to appear to be saying what he said then about Trump's responsibility and the fact that this is unacceptable and un-American behavior. And I think a lot of people took a few hours, realized that, in fact, the Capitol was not burning down and there weren't dozens of congressmen dead. And they decided, oh, let's just wait this out to the end of the term. But there was a real opportunity there, Charlie. The flip side of all this, and I, I agree with you completely, but also I am struck by the contrast between all of the evidence we have now and what was not presented at the impeachment. I mean, so yes, there are many reasons to have moved very, very quickly. On the, on the other hand, they didn't have all this evidence at the time, but I, I agree. Do you think if this evidence 
would have been at the impeachment trial. Maybe maybe it's Cassidy Hutchinson appearing in person, or maybe it's depositions presenting all of this information. Do you think that there would have been not just an impeachment, but do you think that more senators would have voted to remove the president from office? Obviously, we don't know. There was obviously a moment when Mitch McConnell was leaning that way. It was only a moment, but he clearly was was open to it. So what would it have taken to tip him over that line? I honestly don't know. I don't see it. I mean, I, I, don't, yeah, I right. see that the evidence yesterday is in some key ways, especially regarding the knowledge of the weapons and the direction of people with weapons towards Capitol Hill, that it is qualitatively different from what we knew for certain before and what the Senate knew when they were weighing the evidence. The issue, of course, is that I'm not sure you had enough Republican senators who were weighing evidence. That is, people had already decided in advance, and I'm not sure even this evidence would have turned enough. The other thing that I I think has changed, of course, from then to now, is at that time, you go back to what people were thinking January 6th, January 7th, and the weeks afterwards. The assumption was Trump has totally and utterly discredited and disgraced himself, even more so than he had done before. It was interesting when they showed the resignation letters of Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chao in real time on January 6th, how horrified they were and how they didn't want to be part of this anymore. How you had White House aides who quit on the spot with this sort of thing. And I think the assumption was we don't need to necessarily go through the impeachment removal process because he's done. So since he's done, don't beat a dead horse. What no one could have really imagined back then is the change in the Republican Party, the fact that Donald Trump would remain the titular leader of the Republican Party, the Republicans would go along with all of this, and that Donald Trump would seriously contemplate returning to office, that it's a very real prospect. That was absolutely inconceivable in the weeks after January 6th, wasn't it? It was. And And now it's the reality. Well, it is. And it gets to a bigger point that you were kind enough, I think, probably three years ago when we were talking on the podcast to entertain me for a few minutes when I went big and I went deep history. And and you went along with that conversation. And actually, I feel stronger about it now. I was reflecting back on the book, The Storm Before the Storm by Mike Duncan, which talks about the early fall of the Roman Republic, not Julius mm-hmm. Caesar time, but you're going back 100 years before then. And it there's a striking passage, maybe three or four pages in there, where he describes around 133 BCE, when for the first time, political disagreements made their way to the tribes as they queued up to, to vote um, in an election. And that was always sacred. Um, and the person of the tribune was sacred. But a senator and his followers decided to go there. No weapons were allowed, but they grabbed things like table legs and bludgeons And they beat the shit out of the people there, killing at least 100 people. Most importantly, what happened afterwards? Even though Roman politics had had always been waged without resorting to that kind of political violence, the Senate did nothing. The people who who were beat up and killed were denied uh, funeral arrangements. They were dumped into the river. And in fact, the taboo was broken. And it was a Greek historian not long after who observed that precedents do not stop where they begin, but, however, narrow the path upon which they enter and create for themselves a highway, whereupon they wander with the utmost latitude. And that strikes me now is 
what knowing what we know now, yes, we can talk about ketchup on the walls. We, we can talk about individual vignettes from the hearing. But the big picture is we have the acceptance of some of the political elite for political violence of a type that we have not seen. And unless there is some measure of accountability, unless there is some way that the country comes around the fact that this cannot happen, guess what? We have established a new precedent that political violence in some cases is warranted. Okay, so David, you queued this one up, the question of whether or not the Department of Justice is going to criminally charge a former president of the United States. And I, and I think, look, Merrick Garland is an institutionalist. I don't think he's a prosecutor, really, you know, by at, at, at heart. And he fully understands uh, the dangers, the, how politically divisive it would be to charge the president. He also understands the dangers of charging him and having those charges uh, dismissed or what happens if Trump is acquitted. What does that do? What precedent does that uh, create? What happens if uh, uh, a conviction is overturned and Trump declares vindication? Um, on the flip side, though, going back to your point about the precedents, you know, right now, I think they're focused on, you know, what a radically unprecedented thing it would be to charge a former president. But but the failure to charge also strikes me as a massive precedent. It, right? it, if, it, if, if you do not hold him accountable for this, then then what is the state of the rule of law? So I, I you know, where do you come down on this? Well, this is where I, I go against my own grain because normally I would look back to history and find what relevant precedents are there and what can we learn from them. And in this case, Richard Nixon, right, definitely was was obstructing justice, was uh, acting with contempt of Congress, was abusing his power, uh, and the choice was made to pardon him and, and move on. And that may or may not be the right choice. A lot of people have changed their mind over decades about that. But the core case there was somebody uh, abusing the power in a way that was to his own political advantage, or so perceived, but it did not involve armed insurrection and death. And in this case, that is what happened. And that was clearly the, if not the explicit design of the president and those around him, um, it was a very predictable outcome that having a bunch of people with weapons all charged up, fired up over many weeks with this rhetoric moving towards the Capitol. Violence was likely. That is different than Watergate. That is different than any other scandal. So comparing it to Nixon and saying, well, we didn't right. prosecute there, maybe we shouldn't prosecute here, push that out. You got to look at this based on the facts. What we don't know is what DOJ is doing in terms of the facts. We can presume, because they have eyes and ears, that they're familiar with the events of the hearing yesterday. We don't know if they had independently collected that information, but we do know that they have the power to independently collect corroborating information that the committee does not or chooses not to. The committee does not have the same powers as the Department of Justice to compel people to testify, to get information. They can corroborate some of these stories from Cassidy Hutchinson and build the case there the same way that prosecutors have been building the case against members of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the hundreds of others who participated in these events. We don't know what they have, and we don't know what they feel they need in order to make a case. But I think the case did get stronger yesterday uh, if they didn't already have that information from separate sources. 
Well, and also, I, I think it was uh, Neil Katyal who said yesterday, you know, that the conspiracy statutes are also written in such a way as to encourage people to flip, uh, to go. And, and I was, as I was watching this yesterday, I was thinking about all the people who, you know, frankly, around the president, including Mark Meadows, mm-hmm. who really have to be concerned about really significant exposure, not just contempt of Congress type charges. And so it feels, again, and I know it's a cliche, it's a terrible cliche about the walls closing in or things getting in closer. In fact, there's some, you know, great uh, montages of of pundits saying that about Trump in the past. But you look at what's been going on. The Department of Justice raids Jeffrey Clark's house, you know, the former attorney general who was going to be Trump's toady. They took away John Eastman's phone. If they are pursuing conspiracies, you know, there's no conspiracy involving John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark that does not also involve Donald Trump, right? <laughs> it is very telling, back to Mark Meadows, that after the testimony yesterday, you did have sources close to the Secret Service coming out and talking about steering wheels and clavicles or the, the lack of activity thereof. What I did not see and I did not stay up all night searching for it, but I think it would have hit some headlines. I did not see Mark Meadows coming out and saying last night that Cassidy Hutchinson, the bulk of the testimony was about Mark Meadows, what he was saying directly to her. I did not see Mark Meadows coming out and making a statement saying that she lied under oath. I saw nothing. Now, if I'm Mark Meadows, first of all, if I haven't already lawyered up threefold. I'm probably doing that. But it certainly seems to corroborate her testimony to some degree that the person that she cited the most, the person that she was quoting saying, not hearsay, this isn't secondhand news. This is this is what Mark Meadows told me, that yeah. he did not come out to immediately say, she's lying. I never said those things to her. That is telling. You know, I don't think this is ultimately about Mark Meadows, but since we, we bring him up, boy, what a pathetic loser he comes off as. I was, you know, thinking that, you know, the, the deer in the headlight portrayal, actually it's sort of toady in, in the headlight, where he's just sitting there scrolling on his phone. And she, who works with him on a daily basis, is going that he's, you know, how did she describe him? Like he was just not connected. He was you know, having an out-of-body experience, but he was clearly um, not rising to the occasion. Uh, there was no sense in which he was managing uh, anything or that he was that he was responding. And some of the little anecdotes about how he, you know, slammed the door in her face when he was on the phone you know, during the president's speech. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Mark, Mark Meadows, not a surprise, really, really looks bad here. But that um, is different than the White House counsel, because I've got to say, I can't imagine Mark Meadows coming forward and cooperating with the committee because it doesn't look never. like he did what I would call the right thing. Uh, or at least not the wrong thing, very often here. Whereas the White House counsel, there were several times where Cassidy Hutchinson testified that he was at least trying to put some brakes on. You know, can we get the president to to say something about what's happening on Capitol Hill? Or him saying, you know, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement. And that was the reference to the um, proposed off the record movement when instead of being scheduled to go to Capitol Hill, the president was trying to go to Capitol Hill and the, the white house counsel said, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. If we make that movement, clearly 
he had part of his head on straight even during these times, and that makes it more likely that he could come forward, talk to the committee, give the same kind of testimony that that Cassidy Hutchinson did, and shed some more light on these situations and give some more corroboration to some of these more compelling stories. So one other element was dropped at the very end of uh, the hearing where Liz Cheney raised the possibility of witness uh, tampering. So she, she put it right out there. I mean, you saw those notes, didn't you? OK, so let me just read this to you, because you know she reads aloud one example of a witness describing phone calls from people who are interested in their testimony. One of the person says, what they said to me, as long as I continue to be a team player, they know that I'm on the right team. I'm protecting who I need to protect, you know. I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they've reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just to keep that in mind, as I proceeded through my depositions and interviews with the committee, another example, someone called a witness and said an unnamed person, presumably Trump, wants me to let you know that they are thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. Okay, so they don't explicitly say to lie or give false information. So what what are the elements of witness tampering and and is that witness tampering? I don't know if it meets the criminal standard for witness tampering, but I am sick and I've been sick of this since the Mueller report came out of always defaulting to how these inappropriate behaviors map onto criminal statutes. That's important, and that's important for prosecutors, and I guarantee you there are people in the Department of Justice who who are examining those things because that is their job as a public servant to do so. But in focusing on whether it maps to this criminal charge or that one, we, we lose focus, in a sense, on the bigger issue. We're looking at the trees instead of the forest, and the forest is full of monsters. The forest is so inappropriate. There's no way that this is okay. And yes, there have been cases in the past where combined with other behaviors and other communications, prosecutors have used statements like that to show tampering with witnesses. So yes, there's a way to get that there. But we're missing the point if we focus on that. What we focus on instead is the fact that there was a, an effort being made, and I suspect it's much wider than that preview. That may have just been a tease, Charlie, There was an effort to ensure that people stayed on the same message, stayed on the page, the talking points that they had, and reminders were made that all the stuff you've invested in, in some cases for months, in many cases for years, all of that, the bubble around you, will collapse if you actually decide to go off script. That is the clear message, and that shows a level of inappropriate behavior of the president and some of those around him, maybe Rudy Giuliani, maybe Mark Meadows. We don't know who's involved in those messages, but there certainly were people who were trying to prevent testimony from coming forward. Right. And and it's really not, this is not surprising because this is the way they operate. They cannot help themselves. This is what I think is is the real danger if that bubble gets burst, if in fact, or or the dam breaks and other members of the White House staff begin to come forward or or people in Trump world, because Donald Trump himself cannot stop himself from lying under oath and Donald Trump's aides cannot stop themselves from doing this mafia-like, you know, you know, you have to do the right thing sort of thing. I mean, this is in their freaking DNA. So it's going to happen. But you are right. We can't just get bogged down to all being uh, lawyers about all of this. And I respect the people who do this analysis. Don't get me wrong. I think it is an important part of the picture, but it is not the whole picture. 
The example is the fact of Trump uh, wanting to go to the Capitol, which came yes. out strong right. yesterday. One reaction to hearing that news about Trump perhaps trying to seize control of the beast and, and get the presidential vehicle to Capitol Hill or saying he would walk there, uh, telling his followers, I'm with you. One way of looking at that is to immediately go into Mentat mode and start calculating whether that actually meets the threshold for incitement and whether you're actually putting yourself in legal jeopardy. I stop one step short of that before I even get to an analysis of whether this maps to the right criminal charge. I just think that this is a galactic and monstrous lack of class and decorum on the behavior of a president that is unprecedented in history, regardless of whether it's criminal behavior going to the Capitol building, whether to stand outside and speak to these people with weapons and get them more agitated, or to charge into the building, grab the gavel, and have the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys flanking you and literally seizing the chamber. Either Jesus. way, yeah. it is so inappropriate for a president to do that, that we shouldn't worry as much about criminal charges, and we should make sure that we elect presidents with at least a modicum of character. Yeah, from your lips to God's ear. Peter Weiner has a piece out in The Atlantic. A dangerous, deranged, seditious president. Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was damning. If anyone was surprised, they shouldn't have been. Because he basically, she said, you know, everything you thought about him turns out to be true. However, hearing it that way, I, we use this phrase, you know, that I'm not surprised, but I'm shocked or the other way around. Still, it is it is a reminder of what we have been grappling with. And I, you make a really important point, because I think that if we just assume somehow the courts and the judicial system, the justice system is going to take care of this problem for us, that's that's naive. But that's also a dereliction of our duty. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there there's so many reflections that we we need to be having. And I mean, the big we after the testimony yesterday, the easiest thing to do. And and frankly, I'm I'm ashamed the, the easiest thing to do is to focus on the ketchup on the walls. Yeah. And uh, we had a, a slight disagreement about this yesterday, as people pointed out, you know, no, you know, that is that is defacing the White House. Uh, yeah. That actually is an issue. I'm like, yes, it's an issue. Um, but it's 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 not in the top 10 or top 20 issues of the, that came up yesterday. It it reinforces our priors. I mean, honestly, who of us didn't believe that there was a toddler throwing things at the wall in the White House? We could have almost written it's like a brushstroke. It's a brushstroke on a, on a, you know, this, this huge mural of deep corruption. We don't need to reflect on what condiments are on which walls in the white house and how often we need All to reflect right. on what is it that got us here. Thank you, Tim Miller. We need to reflect on who is it that is still enabling this behavior. Thank you. The bulwark. We need to focus on what it is institutionally, legally, um, that we can do to bolster democracy while we can. Thank you, Lawfare. Um, hmm. we, we need to reflect on all of these things. And as private citizens, you know, wh what are we doing to passively or actively enable this by not participating in not just national elections, but local elections? Uh, what are we doing by tweeting right. our outrage instead of going out and registering voters and uh, running for office or supporting those who support representative democracy? This is a moment for reflection, not for catch-up jokes. I agree. It'll be interesting to see again how this all plays out. Republican members of Congress who have gone along with all of this, who support and enable Trump, apparently some of them are saying that Hutchinson's testimony was worse than they imagined. They were stunned and left speechless. And 
as Peter Winter says, you know, if they were, they, they shouldn't have been. But the question is, will they get over it in the next five minutes? You know, will they look around and read the room and decide that just like they did after January 6th, that, you know, you know what, uh, we're just not going to do anything about this. Or, or wait for, again, to your point, wait for somebody else to fix this problem. And I think exactly. that's part of the collective action problem that everybody else waits and they hope that someone else will do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And at some point we pass that buck. So yep. David Priest, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me and for that, uh, that eloquent closing, which uh, I, I think we need to keep in mind. Thank you, David. You're welcome. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.